If you turn tonight to Romans chapter 2, we'll pick up in verse 6. And this really also is the second part of a message I've entitled, How Does God Judge? And so this is the second portion. And we're now turning our attention to the eternal state uh, of those who are lost. And always remind yourself that whenever Scripture gives us very clear directives about one side of the equation or the other, and when Scripture talks about those who are lost, the inverse of that can also be said to be true about those who are saved and vice versa. And so it's important for us as the church, as we read these verses, though a vast majority of us in here uh, would genuinely say that we have relationships with the Lord Jesus Christ and we're saved, there's a couple of places where these things would touch our lives. What we do remember that the Apostle Paul, as he closed out the first chapter, he said that we are not to approve of those who do such things. In other words, our lives as the church are supposed to be substantially different than those who are in the world without Christ. What we do matters, but it does not matter in the sense that it is a way that we are saved. We're not saved by works, but we are absolutely saved for good works. In other words, there were good works. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the church at Ephesus. He said that before the foundation of the world, that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Amen? So when he gave us that wonderful grace relationship, he did not expect us to squander it. He does not intend for us to walk in darkness any longer. It is not optional for a believer to live their life apart from the glory of God, the goodness of God, and think that they're in the grace of God. We need to walk as closely as we can to the way Scripture defines that we are supposed to conduct ourselves bearing forth fruit of repentance. And so this passage, I will tell you ahead of time, is a tough one. It's a difficult section of scripture that we face because interpreted wrongly, one could come to the conclusion that we're saved by works. But that is not who's being addressed here. This is the eternal state of those who are not saved. And the apostle makes that very clear as the way he begins this particular passage of scripture. So stay with me tonight. You're going to need to engage your theologic mind You're going to need to hang on to some things throughout the message and allow me the opportunity to speak in the full context of what Scripture says. This is one of those passages that people have a tendency to turn off uh, within the first few minutes because it's just like, well, you know, I just think this is going away. I don't want it to go. Please stay with me. This is important for us as the body of Christ. And if you're here tonight and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm speaking to you right now. Scripture is clear. That there are two roads, and one leads unto life and godliness, and one leads to death and damnation. And we get to choose which one of those two roads that we want to walk on. And I would pray tonight, if you came in without Christ, that you will not leave this building without him, as your Savior and as your Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the power of your word 
the majesty of your word, the wonder of your word, the truth of your word. And we pray now as we study it that you would speak from heaven directly to our minds and our hearts. Would our souls, our spirits be engaged fully as we study. We bless you. We thank you, Lord, for this time tonight. Pray that you would now use it for your kingdom purposes in each of our lives. We ask these things in the majestic name of Jesus, the name above all names. Amen. Verse 6 here in Romans 2. It's obviously referring to someone who he's already mentioned. That would be the unrighteous. It's the whole focus of chapter 1. It's the beginning of chapter 2. The one who, in verse 5 it says, will ultimately face the day of wrath. Who? will render to each one according to his deeds. And so you can see immediately how someone could come to the conclusion that the Apostle Paul has shifted gears away from grace and towards salvation that might be based on what you do. But stay with him, stay with the Lord, stay with me as this passage gets unfolded for us. Eternal life to those who by patience continuance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. You ever noticed how words can look one way and, oh my goodness, forgive me, Lord, for biffing that word. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. And so there is a comparison here. Those who are going to be rewarded by their deeds that are good, and those who are going to be rewarded by their deeds who are unrighteous. So there are two sets of deeds that are in view. Tribulation, anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. And notice the effort on the things that proceed out of our lives. We would call them works. We would call them deeds. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, he's reminding us that your heritage, your lineage, your birthright, you could carry it out to your church, your affiliations, You're not going to be judged ever when you stand before God by what church you attended, by what nationality you are, what race, what creed. You are going to be judged on one thing and one thing only in in the final issuance of where you will spend eternity, and that is Jesus Christ. But if, in fact, we are God's children, then the deeds of God's children look very different than the deeds of those who are not God's children. For there is no partiality with God. You see, notice that what you do matters. Whether you're saved or unsaved. Whether you're of the Jewish race or whether you're of the Gentiles. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law. 
He makes it very clear. There's a distinction on how we live our lives. Those will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves. Do you remember what the apostle said in the first chapter? To paraphrase it, he said, you could know God simply by seeing his creation. That it testifies of him. That innate within every human being is a capacity to seek, to know, to understand. Probably most of us in this room, if you think back on your conversion experience, when you said yes to Jesus Christ, it was not an instantaneous tugging. For some it is. But for most of us, there had been an issue going on in our lives that all of a sudden came to fruition at a moment in time when the light bulb went on, that epiphanal thought came to you, and you knew that there was a God in heaven, and one day you were going to stand before him. You knew that you were a sinner, and you had no way to take care of that sin save the free gift that was offered in Jesus Christ. But before that day or night happened... That internal sense of right and of wrong and of good and of evil and of just and unjust living. Really of godliness and ungodliness. It was there. That was built into us by God. Every person that's ever lived has that. No one's born without it. There are some where it's far less prominent than in others. And there are those that it's far more prominent than others. But nonetheless, all men have been created in the image and likeness of God with the Ruach Elohim, the spirit of the living God within you. So there is an evidence, as we saw in our study in the Holy Spirit, there is a Holy Spirit that is working in and around us. There is a Holy Spirit that we've received into our lives and we believe. And there is a Holy Spirit upon and flowing out of us. The Holy Spirit is speaking of those things. That is the reason that Jesus said, if these do not testify of me, the rocks and the trees will cry out. No one will ever have an excuse. We will all stand one day before the same holy God as believers to be judged in Christ, as unbelievers to be judged in our own sin. And so he continues, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law, check this out, written in their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness. We call it a moral compass, a sense of good and of evil. Between themselves and their thoughts, or else excusing them. Every single living, breathing human being has the law of God written in their heart has a conscience that is able to discern between right and wrong, 
and has the innate ability to determine that there is a God, that he created them, and they're responsible to him. That is the way God has created every human being, whether in a jungle or whether here in Los Angeles. That is how come God can be perfectly just. And that is why we can say without equivocation that God has created no one for destruction. He has created all to be saved and to glorify him. He's given us the capacity to do so. And to those who seek him, scripture says they shall find him. Because he's quite visible. He's knowable. And then he says in verse 16, in the day that God will judge the secrets of men, notice the source of the judgment by Jesus Christ. According to my gospel, the only way of salvation. So that verse that we all know, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, singular, The truth, singular. The life, singular. And no one comes to the Father but by me, that gospel. Not by church affiliation. Not by denomination. Not because you're a Jew or a Gentile. Not because you're an American or a Russian or Chinese. But because you have been found in Christ Jesus. And so let's unwrap this. What about our deeds? What about those things that we do? You see, because God is perfectly just, he's going to judge everyone's deeds. Yours, mine, every believer, every unbeliever. That's a fact. Scripture is replete with our understanding. The Apostle Paul teaches this. The book of Isaiah teaches it. Jesus himself reiterated these truths. And so when you think about justice and judgment, some people say, well, he's only going to judge the unbeliever. That's not true. The difference is he's going to judge the unbelievers without Christ. And he's going to judge the believers in Christ, with Christ, through Christ, and see us through his righteousness. And so we will not be judged for our salvation. We'll be judged for reward or lack thereof. That's why scripture tells us that there will be those who get into heaven as though by fire. Singed, if you were. They'll get in, but the flames of hell will be lapping at their heels. They were this, you don't want to be in that crowd. You don't want to be in the ones that were close to not making it, but made it. You want to be in that group of people whom by your works, your deeds have testified with the very substance of your life that you love the Lord. You see, those things in us should do great works out of us. Clearly taught the prophet Isaiah in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, say to the righteous that go well, it will go well with them, for they will eat of the fruit of their actions. And woe to them who are wicked, it will go badly for them, for what he deserves will be done to him. Even the prophet Isaiah said, Look, the things that you do matter. Your deeds matter. We don't like to talk about this stuff in the church. You see, here's the deal. Jeremiah was right. Look, God searches our hearts. He tests our minds. He knows all things. Here's the deal. 
Just because we're saved does not give us the right to trample on God's grace. It doesn't mean that you can live your life, I can live my life, we can live our lives as though we had no responsibility to God. The good news is, as a child of grace, that those faux pas and failures, those weaknesses and wanderings, are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And whether you see it in the Old Testament or in the New, it's very clear that for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of ourselves, not of yourself or myself. That is a gift of God. None of us can brag about it. Amen? Paraphrasing. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You you see, for us, we're going to heaven. But we ought to get there with some bragging rights about what we did with Jesus' stuff. His life that he paid for. Because scripture says you have been bought and paid for with a price. What is that price? The blood of the Lamb of God. What are you doing with the investment that Christ made in you at Calvary's cross? Your deeds matter. The judgment of God is going to come to us, though not for salvation, but for reward. So where do these things fit? Though as a believer you're not saved by works, you are rewarded for works. Make that distinction in your heart. Make it in your mind. There is a subjective criteria here. For salvation, that criteria is faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is the criteria, period. But the objective reality that we live out in our daily lives... The thing that happens with us because of that subjective criteria that we're saved by faith, which results in grace being applied to our lives, the objective reality is manifest in the things that we do. Do you see the difference? You see, if you make it into salvation by works, then it becomes an objective reality. You do these things and you're good to go. But it is a subjective reality because you are asking for the gift of faith. And the faith that you may have may be different than the faith that I have. But it is nonetheless saving faith and it's a gift that's been given to you. Some people have great faith. Some people have a little faith. We first need some faith and so God gives us faith so that we can believe. That is the subjective reality. It's subject to you receiving it. Not you earning it, not you working for it. I told you this is going to be a difficult passage. You need your theological hats, so stick them on. Keep them. Keep with me here. And in that sense, here's what happens. Your actions become an infallible index of whether you're saved or not. Now notice I didn't say that they are the way you are saved. They are an index of the salvation that is now working in you. Someone could look at it and they could say, that's fruit of the Spirit. That comes out of somebody who's saved. 
Or they could look at your works and say, that is carnality in flesh. And so if there are no objective realities that are of Christ, you must question whether you have a genuine faith or not. If there are no objective realities, that is our way of even testing our own salvation. Walking in fear and trembling, going, man, I should be very concerned that there are no objective realities that are viewable in my life. Someone can look at my life and say, hey, there it is. And you know when you first come to Christ, maybe the first objective reality is you only use 40 swear words in a sentence instead of 50. Now hear me, hear me well. Maybe instead of being stoned every day of the week, you're now only stoned three days a week. I am not excusing you smoking dope, okay? But you used to be really a super mess, and now you're only partially a mess. Praise God, that is an objective reality. You're different. There's something that's happening. You're working the right direction. You're going the way that the Lord would have you go. Maybe not as fast as some people would like you to go, or maybe not as fast as you think you ought to go. But you're going the right way. There is objective reality that's viewable in your life. Translation, salvation is not by works, but it assuredly will produce works in and through you. Assuredly. There will be some. They may be sparse. They may be few and far between, but there will at least be some. Hopefully I didn't just freak any of you out and think that you're saved by works. We continue onward. Look, here's the deal. There's exactly two roads. One is the road of grace and mercy. And one is the road of self. God is without partiality when he looks at those two roads. He doesn't put you on one or the other. You choose which one of those two roads you want to be on. You need to choose for yourself. What was true of Joshua is true of me and you. You must choose this day whom you will serve, period. And if you're serving someone, then you do their bidding, right? If you're actually in the employ of someone, if you have a job, tomorrow you're going to go, and it's Friday, and you're going to go into work, you do not go in and generally, as an employee, set your own schedule, you don't make your own You know, the work that you're going, that's determined by someone else. But you faithfully go in as best you can and execute what it is that you've been paid to do. As a Christian, you've been bought and paid for with a price. What God has asked you to do is turn your life over to his lordship so that he can work out of you good works that show the repentance that's now true in you. And so you go in and you clock in for the Lord in that sense. And as you clock in, he's going to dictate what that looks like, how your work day is going to go. And it's going to be love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, and self-control. It's going to be kindness and goodness. It's going to produce out of you things that we would say are the fruit of the Spirit of God, which is easily defined by love and everything that flows out of love. You see, there are two distinct groups of sinners that Paul's dealing with here. 
There, there are those that when you look at their lives, you would say, eh, they've had some opportunity and some have not had some opportunity, but it looks like they've had some opportunity. And so as you choose those destinations, notice what it says. There's no partiality of God. All have sinned without the law, perish without the law. He's absolutely understanding of where you are, where you've been, where you're going, and he's not holding you to a standard that is not applicable to you. It's a beautiful picture. Uh, Most of us can think of of this concept at least, and perhaps you've seen a, a statue of Lady Justice. There's a couple of things about Lady Justice. Number one, she's blindfolded, right? Holds a set of scales in her hands. And there's some things that we know about this picture. And here's the deal. She can't see who's before her. Completely blind. No idea. Doesn't even know who the defendant is and who the plaintiff is. She couldn't tell you. God is very much the same way. She's also pictured very often with her hands or her feet bound or tied. And the reason there is so there's no receiving of a bribe. She can go nowhere. She just stands and listens and hears and judges fairly, equitably, justly. Now multiply times billions to infinity and to beyond, to quote Buzz Lightyear. And that's where you have God. God is blind to all of mankind's wranglings. If you know some of the law, then the law to you is going to be something God's going to hold you accountable. If you know none of the law, God's going to hold you accountable to none of the law. He's still going to hold you accountable to that internal knowledge you have to the goodness, the kindness that's innate within every human being. But God is perfect when he judges. And so when you get on those roads, here's what human beings do. Well, it was my life's situations that pushed me down the wrong road. James, the half-brother of Jesus, put it this way. Let no one say when he sends, he sends of God. But everyone sins when he's drawn away by his own lust or his own desire. And when those things give birth, they bring forth sin and death. Every human being has the capacity at some level to flee those things. No one is pushed so hard and so far that they are pushed away from completely the grace of God to an ability to not be saved. No one has that happen to them. And where this is important for us is we get into arguments very, well, you know, what about people who live in a jungle somewhere? What about, uh, the question I get asked very often, what about people in, in predominantly Muslim countries living under Sharia law? Bound by their government, under threat of death. Yes, it's horrible. Yes, it's difficult. But no, it's not impossible. And that is the reason that we are seeing mass conversions within predominantly Muslim countries today. There's an internal understanding. I have friends all over the mission field, all over the Middle East, 
And they're all saying the same thing. So we can't believe how many times we come to people who are, who are Muslims and we share with them the love of Jesus. They said, we've been waiting for somebody to tell us this truth. That they knew internally that what they had could not save. That's what your Bible says. It clearly says that no one will be without excuse. You're going to stand before God. You're going to just be going, I don't have an excuse, God. Yeah, my life was difficult. My life was hard. But I knew. And so these two destinations, God is going to allow us to choose. He also gives us these two types of sinners, those who have had opportunity and those who have not. And when you look at what the apostle says here, what God writes through him, the Jewish people, think about this for a moment. And again, I want to be very careful because I'm really not trying to you know, cast dispersion upon any group. It is important that we get the concept here. If any group of people on planet Earth should have had an easy time finding God's grace, hearing his merciful voice, knowing the character, the nature, the countenance of God, if there was any group ever who should have gotten it, it should have been the Jewish people. They had been delivered miraculously and even celebrate to this day the Passover. They had fled from the terror of 400 years of slavery. The Red Sea miraculously opens up. They go to the other side and in 12 nanoseconds... Oh, God, we want to go back to Egypt because it's hot and we don't have any leeks and onions and there's no meat for our pots. And yes, I'm traumatizing. But imagine from God's perspective, what do I need to do? I sent a stuttering representative named Moses to go speak to Pharaoh I delivered you not from one plague, the last plague, but from all the plagues. The flies, the frogs, the boils, the river turning, all of them. You, it looks like you're dead people. And not by your own works. I miraculously deliver you. You pass over to the other side. And then when you get there, There's nothing there that you can do to take care of yourself. So what does God do? God takes care of them in the wilderness. And they whine about that. We hate manna. They had little bumper stickers on their camels. No manna today. (laughs) So they get some quail eggs. Then they run out of water. Looks like they're going to die. What does God do? Delivers them to a bitter spring. They complain about the bitter spring, so Moses grabs a tree. And by putting the tree 
into the bitter water, the water becomes sweet. That's a picture of your salvation in Jesus Christ, by the way. The tree placed into the waters of your life and the waters become sweet, not because you're sweet, because he's the one who made it sweet. So this whole thing, you would have thought that when they got to the edge of Canaan, that the Jewish people would have been on their face before God. Going, finally, we've been delivered. But instead, in unbelief, the spies go in, and only Joshua and Caleb and a handful come back. Everybody else is going, there's giants in the land. This place stinks. You see, people have been disagreeing with God since day one. And God's response every single time is to save a faithful remnant and to offer yet further opportunity for those who are in a bad situation because of their knucklehead leaders. And so finally they enter in. Joshua brings them into the promised land. You would think, after all that history, the moment Messiah came on the scene, they'd have been, hallelujah, praise the Lord, here is the king of kings, the lion of the tribe of Judah has come. But they didn't. Why this long story? Because that's how much privilege you can have and still miss the gospel message. Now take it to the other side. The Gentiles. They don't have all that privilege. They have no prophets. They have no patriarchs. They got zip, not a nothing. What they got is despot rulers, completely taken advantage of, They're entirely carnal, and their whole system of government is built on taking advantage of people who are lesser than them. And somehow, Roman centurions are like, I need Jesus. You see, you can have no understanding of God, and if you're seeking him, you'll find him. That's the beauty of grace. And so in the Jewish people, we find people of faith throughout their story. Also a beautiful picture of God's grace. You ever thought about sitting down and having dinner with David? Getting to talk to Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph. What was it like being in the hole? You see, by faith, they believed. So whether it was in the Old Testament or today, it's faith that saves. It's not heritage. It's not privilege. It's not whether you grew up in a churchy family or your family was practicing Satanists. By the way, I had the privilege of leading a young lady to the Lord that not only grew up in the church of Satan, watched her own sister sacrifice to the devil, Now, you would think that that young lady's got zero chance of coming to faith in Christ with an upbringing like that. 
her parents sacrificed her sister in front of her to Satan. Loves the Lord. Went off to Bible college. She married a dude. She's in Ukraine now, I think, as a missionary. God is that good. But he lets us choose. I'll begin to wrap this up tonight. You see, our suffering that one would endure if one doesn't come to faith in Christ, again, make sure you know who he's talking about here. Those who don't come to faith in Christ, those who want to choose that other road, is also proportional to knowledge. Jesus illustrated this in Luke 12. And he said, Of that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in its accord with his will shall receive many lashes, but the one who did not know it and committed the deeds worthy of flogging will receive but a few. That's Jesus speaking. He's saying, look, directly proportional. Just like there are going to be rewards in heaven, there's going to be hotter places in hell. Those who perish without Christ who were child molesters, took advantage of people who were disadvantaged. You don't receive the grace of God. You don't start walking on the narrow road. You don't come to that place where you say, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Look out. It's not going to be good. My own mom was married to a man that literally the last day I saw him alive blasphemed God to my face. I do not even want to think what it's like for him right now. And one day it's going to get infinitely worse when he's judged at the great white throne judgment. You see, that suffering that we even endure later is a reason for us to think about what we do today. There are four basic reasons that people are lost. And I want to just take these. Chapter 1, we saw it very, very clearly. That the rejection of that knowledge of God that's available through his creation condemns them. When you look at what God has done, we have Charlie Campbell in two weeks going to be here sharing. Great apologist, he'll bring all of his books and you can buy them and just read until your heart's content. But the creation itself testifies of God. There's no way to look at the world that we live in the incredible complexity and order that's within the galaxies and the star systems and the universe itself boiled all the way down to the irreducible complexity of the human body, the cellular components, the proteins, amino acids that make up you. When you look at all that stored information and you realize that information itself cannot be stored by chemicals, it is not possible for it to do that. It's an impossibility. Chemicals cannot create information. So anyone that thinks that chemicals floated around in a pool of goo for billions of years somehow got organized and then created not just the organization itself, but information, then stored the information, then transmitted the information on to additional component parts of something that's unorganized, needs to seriously think about the logic of what they believe. So the creation is one way that people can be lost because they can look at it 
I don't think there's any God in it. A second way, the Apostle Paul now points out that it's our conduct based on the knowledge of God that is in our hearts. Good, evil, right, wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness. Those are inherent within every single human being. As messed up as the total understanding of those concepts might be in any one given individual, there is no one that doesn't have a general sense of right or wrong. And we can prove this when people try and defend their actions even if they've been evil. Because the simple fact that they defend themselves is acknowledging they know they're wrong. You see how easy it is to logically just take that argument and go, you knew it was wrong. Otherwise, you just openly say, I don't care. But people know. A third way that people without the Lord are condemned is their own internal conscience. It's not just written on your heart. It's right here in your mind. We call it that still small voice. And probably every one of us in here has had those experiences in life where you've been doing something and man, you just instantaneously know I should not be doing this. That's an imprint of the Spirit of God. You were created in His image. He gave you the Ruach Elohim, the breath of God. We're covering this on Sunday night, by the way. I would encourage you to be there. He's put within you a spirit with which his spirit can speak to your spirit. It is not just your conscience or your mind. It is your spirit. It's where you connect with God. So you have the conscience. You have the spirit. And then a fourth thing, by the things that you think and contemplate. Probably everyone in here, again, you can think back on times when you knew something was actually wrong, but you contemplated ways to make it seem okay. We call it justification in our day and time, don't we? People like to justify the reason why they do something that they inherently know is not correct, but they then give you an excuse as to why it is correct in their circumstance. That is the contemplation of the human mind that says, I don't want to think about God, so I'll think about my stuff and I'll justify it before men by the way I think about it. Paul's addressing that here. Look, there are all kinds of people that, even in the Bible, evil people, pagans who did good things. King Darius and Daniel's uh, situation, the book of Acts has several of them, the city clerk in in the city of Ephesus, The Roman military officers who who prosecuted Paul, remember, they were kind and gentle to him. There were the natives of Malta, we'll see all these in the book of Acts, who befriended Paul. He's shipwrecked, shouldn't have been there in the first place, but they do good to this guy that they don't even like. You see these four things? The creation will tell you there's a God. Your conduct should tell you that there's a God. Your conscience definitely tells you that there's a God. And the things you think about will lead you to God. So every human being, if they really stop and will admit it, has an internal sense that there's a God. 
And so out of that should flow some actions. You see, there are all kinds of things that we think about with our, with our minds. We, we know we're guilty. We know we're not perfect. Strange thing, when you get people alone and you sit down with them, I have yet to meet a single person I've had one person say that he's not done anything to repent of, which I've shared with you. He's a presidential candidate. But other than him, I have yet to meet a person that said they were perfect. Never done anything wrong. Never needed to repent. Most of us realize we've fallen short of the glory of God. And anyone who stops will absolutely realize God's righteousness, my conduct, way short. That's supposed to bring you to the cross. The Tutsi tribe of southern, south Saharan, the sub-Saharan African portion of, of, of really kind of the middle of Africa, they have an unusual way to test the guilt of an accused person. They take a knife, they stick it in the fire, and they get it nice and hot, and then they ask the person to stick his tongue out. And they take the hot knife, and they put it on their tongue. And if it sizzles, it will not burn them, and they're innocent. But if it burns them, they're guilty. Why is that? Because their conscience had already condemned them. That's the reason they have the dry mouth so there's no saliva on their tongue. Now don't you think if they know that, that God's probably figured out a way to communicate those same truths to everyone who's on this planet? You see, guilt is a good thing. It helps us understand God's directives for our lives. And ultimately, God simply looks at our motives. Paul makes it clear. He says, the day, according to my gospel, he says, that God's going to judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus there in verse 16. You see, God not only put within us in creation and our conscience, and our contemplations, and all these things. He not only did all of that, but beyond that, he actually looks past all the smokescreen stuff that we put out, directly to the motivation of our heart, why we do what we do. So when we think about our deeds, you know, there are all kinds of people that do things, and I'll, I will just tell you this, as a senior pastor, there are people who try and impress me with their spirituality, with their godly idea, even their godly behavior. They even speak to me in Christianese. But God's given me the ability to look past those things and to hear beyond the words. And if I can do that, I'm pretty sure he's spot on at doing that. He doesn't listen to our Christianese. 
He knows the exact motivation for why we do what we do. Every bit of it. Good, bad, ugly, indifferent. And so God judges us based on our motivations. And it is a valid judgment because he sees the secrets of our heart. Amen? Some people, well, you can't judge my motives. You're right, I can't. But God sure can. And he will. Well, you can't judge my conscience. You're right, I can't. But God can. You can't judge what I know or I don't know. You're right, I can't. But God can. And so here's the secret to this. That's the reason that we're supposed to do good works. Because then what's on the inside and known only by you and God is also visible on the outside and they're known by everybody else. So when we think of the deeds that we do, God judges them perfectly. And when they're for the king and his glory, it results in reward. And when they're for you and your own glory, they're at best wood, hay, and stubble. And if they're to deceive, the only deception really ultimately is you. Because it doesn't fool him. You see, our deeds do matter. And God judges perfectly. He knows not just what we do, but why we do what we do. And so here's my suggestion. And this is really for all of us. And I'm going to give you two examples. I'm going to have the worship team come back up, begin to head this way. We're all familiar with David's story. David committed terrible, horrible, heinous sins. Amen? Everybody say amen to that? Amen. He was an adulterer. He had a child out of wedlock. He was a murderer. He was a liar. There were all kinds of things that David did. We could look at it. Do you think God judged him by those works of whether he's going to be in heaven or not? Scripture says no. Matter of fact, it says about David, he was a man after God's own heart. I praise God for that. Because that means the works that I do as someone who has faith in Jesus Christ are supposed to be indicative of who I am in him. And here's the good news. David turned it around. Because there was genuine repentance in David's life, there was genuinely a change in the works that came out of his life. So it's not about where your transgressions are in the scale of transgressions. It's have you said, I was wrong and I'm sorry. And Lord, I want to do better. To that person, grace upon grace upon grace. And that grace just abounds and will see you home to heaven. But let me give you another example. His name is Judas. Judas, on the outside, looked like he might have been one of the most holy guys that ever walked the face of the earth. He was the keeper of the money bag. 
Nobody even suspected. The other of the twelve, the eleven, were so convinced by Judas's outward religiosity that they said, Lord, is it me? They didn't know. He was that good at hiding what was inside. When did Judas finally come to his senses? When it was too late. Judas, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And Judas kissed him. That's a hard heart that believes that he's okay. Don't let that be you. You can have the choice, the grace of David, or the justice and the judgment of Judas. There's no doubt which one I've chosen. There's no doubt which one most of you have chosen. But tonight if you're here and you think you're fooling God, you're not. And so I'm going to ask you to stand. And I want to pray over you. I'm going to have the pastors come forward. And I want to pray for us. Because I truly believe there are some people that are here tonight and you're playing games with God. I believe that. And I just simply want to encourage you, stop. Don't do it anymore. And so would you bow your heads and pray with me? And I'm going to ask you right now, if you're here and that's your story, The works that have come out of you don't indicate that you've ever met Jesus and you want to meet him tonight. I want to pray with you and for you. And so would you just slip your hand as your head's bowed, your eyes are closed, just put your hand up in the air. I'm looking around, I can see throughout the sanctuary. So I see that hand in the back, praise the Lord. Are there any others? Don't be ashamed. Look, I, I, I was in the same place. I see that other hand. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for these that have raised their hands. Any others? Just slip your hand up. We're going to have you pray right where you're at. Make tonight the day of salvation. The angels are rejoicing right now. See that hand as well. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Salvation has come to the house of the Lord tonight. See that hand as well. Keep your hands up for a moment longer, if you would, please. Any others? I see that hand in the center. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. I'll praise you, Jesus. Those that have raised your hands, would you pray with me right now? Just pray where you're at, out loud, dear Jesus. I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I've been fighting against you. And I want to surrender right now my life to you. 
I'm asking you to come into my life and be my Savior and to take over and be my Lord. I promise, Lord, to serve you all of my days. I thank you for forgiving me and making me clean, taking care of my sin. And I would ask right now that you would write my name in the Lamb's book of life and that you would help me to walk with you all of my days. I pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Welcome to the family of God. Thank you.